0: Weddings are very special occasions, aren't they? One of the greatest celebrations that we will experience in our life will be going to a wedding and to the dinner afterwards. So much effort is put into preparing for the day. Churches, A photographer is hired, uh, invitations are sent out, dinner menus are decided, dresses and waistcoats are bought, a makeup artist is enlisted, and on the day, flowers are arranged, the venue's decorated, even the bridal car is decorated, and the list just goes on and on. Loads of preparation goes into a wedding day to make it as special as possible for the couple to get married. Well, John has given us an account of a wedding in our passage this evening in chapter 2, and it is the most incredible wedding that has ever occurred. But what makes it incredible is not the elaborate preparations that have gone into it. It's not even the couple who are supposed to be at the centre of the day. No, this wedding is set apart from any other in all of human history because we're told it is where Jesus reveals his glory. The Son of God not only attends this wedding, but he shows us something of himself. And this account helps us to understand just how incredible Jesus is, and the incredible future that he has prepared for those who would receive him. First, we're going to look at John's eyewitness account of this wedding Uh, through the verses, from verses 1 to 11. And then we're going to investigate the significance of what Jesus does here at the wedding. And we'll finish up with some thoughts on our own response in the light of what we see. So firstly, uh, the wedding at Cana. Come with me to chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. John starts by setting the scene for us, uh, telling us, his readers, when and where we are in his gospel. In two days since verse 51 that we looked at last week, when Jesus called uh, Philip, Nathanael, to himself. And as for the place where Jesus is, he's still in Galilee. He's in Cana, which we'll find out later in John's Gospel, is the hometown of Nathanael. And Jesus, his disciples, the five that we've met so far, and his mother are guests at this wedding. Uh, not the wedding service itself, where the vows are said by the couple, but the wedding feast celebrating the union of the newlyweds. Now, when I went to my first Malaysian wedding dinner here, here in Malaysia, I was quite taken aback. In fact, I was actually lost for words. You see, Back in the UK, uh, when a a British guy like me thinks of a wedding dinner, we think of maybe a meal shared by 50 to 100 people, a local restaurant, three nice but fairly simple courses, uh, some speeches and, regrettably, some dancing afterwards. But here, in Malaysia, some wedding dinners are, are just spectacular. It's not 50 to 100 guests that are invited. There are 50 to 100 tables ready for you. We're not talking about three courses of food, we're talking about an eight-course Chinese dinner. PowerPoint shows, free-flow drinks, live songs. gifts not just for the bride and the groom, but for the guests as well. You guys, you just take it to this whole other level. But even that doesn't compare with the kind of celebration that John is describing to us here. Because back in Jesus' day, these wedding feasts usually lasted an entire week. imagine that? Malaysian wedding dinner, seven nights in a row. Well, that's the scene that John sets for us. Jesus, his disciples, and his mother enjoying what was probably a week-long wedding feast. But there's a problem. Actually, I say it's a problem. It's, that's a bit of an understatement. It's a bit of a disaster, really. Come with me to verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. They have no wine. Now these days, if the wine runs out at a Malaysian wedding dinner, it's not great, but it won't ruin the entire evening. But at a wedding feast in Jesus' day, it was a really, really serious issue. The bridegroom was ultimately responsible for providing for his guests. Throughout those whole seven days, it was his job to make sure there was enough food, enough drink, enough entertainment to last all that week, that whole week of celebration. Especially the wine. The wine was reserved for these kinds of celebrations, and it was crucial in that culture. There's even evidence to suggest that if it were to run out, the parents of the bride could actually sue the bridegroom because of the embarrassment that it would cause their daughter and their family. So running out of wine was no joke. It could have led to a lawsuit. So the alarm bells are ringing, and Jesus' mother decides to act. Verse 3. first of all, all, When when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. It's quite a strange reply. I wonder if that's what you would have expected Jesus to say in that situation. Uh, the answer he gives to Mary, his mother. What has this got to do with me, woman? He's not being rude. A gyne, the Greek word which our ESV Bibles translates woman, is actually a, it's a respectful title, but it's one which, is, which puts a person at a distance as well. It's polite, but by using it, Jesus distances himself from his mother and the request that she's making. And his next statement helps us to understand why in verse 4. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Mary was entirely wrapped up in this disaster at the wedding in Cana because the wine had run out. And she comes to Jesus as her son to request his assistance. But for those of us who have been Coming for the past few weeks and working through John's Gospel together, we know that Jesus is no ordinary Son. In the first verse of John's Gospel, we're shown that Jesus is no less than the living Word of God, the one who dwells eternally with the Father, the Word who both was God and who was with God from the beginning. He is the Word become flesh, God with us. Yes, for a time, as Mary's son, but as much, much more than just her son. Jesus, as God, come to us, made man, came to us with a mission. He came that we might have relationship with God again, despite our sin, despite the fact that each and every one of us have decided to reject him, as the Lord and creator of our lives are cut off from him because of our sin against him. And that mission, as we're going to see as we go throughout John's Gospel, turns on a particular hour. One that Jesus says here has not yet come. A horrific and wonderful day in which Jesus would work to reconcile us to God. That's the hour to which Jesus is referring in verse 4. And as he says, it has not yet come. Mary wanted Jesus to do something at this point purely to save the wedding. But Jesus, as we've seen, comes with a far greater purpose. He will save the wedding, but he will only do it in a way that points his disciples to himself and the true reason for why he came as the one who comes to save us from our service, and we'll see later how he does that how he shows that that is his true mission uh, through the miracle of the land. so Mary didn't get the reply that she hoped for she actually receives what is in effect a mild rebuke from Jesus here. that would have been hard for Mary she was Jesus' mother his human mother she would have fed him She would have nursed him as a baby. She would have brought him up. She would have even taught him the scriptures. And here Jesus, because of his mission, has to distance himself from Mary's request and from Mary herself. But you notice how Mary reacts? She doesn't grumble. She doesn't turn her back on Jesus. She doesn't scold her son she trusts him she responds not so much as a mother but as we will see as a faithful disciple you read in verse 5 his mother said to the servants do whatever he tells you do whatever he tells you mary trusts that jesus will is best even if it was hard to understand and accept even though that rebuke would not have been easy for her to receive. I wonder how we might have responded if we had been in Mary's shoes at that wedding, hearing those words from Jesus. What's our attitude to him when we pray and we don't get the answer that we hope for? In the midst of a difficult time? It probably won't be wine running out at a wedding dinner, but it could be that we've got a a really hard time at work at the moment. We've got that boss that just, well, just keeps on uh, getting at us, keeps us, giving us a ridiculous amount of work to do, keeps on giving us a hard time, and we just want a break, and we're praying into that situation. Or we're just overloaded with assignments. We just desperately want things to slow down. We're praying into that situation. Maybe it will get to the point where we, we face redundancy. And we're wondering, how on earth am I going to provide for my family? We pray into that situation. Maybe on a more personal level, someone who we know who is very close to us falls ill, or we ourselves become gravely ill, and we're praying into these difficult situations. But we're not receiving the answer that we're hoping for. God's not answering our prayers in the way that we really want. How do we start to feel when that happens as Christians? We start to feel that God has failed us. That that he's not looking out for my best interests. Friends, we need to model the faith that Mary shows in her own son, Jesus, here. She knew that Jesus knows best. He knows what we really need. He knows when we need it. Especially in the hardest of times. When life is painful or puzzling when we can't even work out what is going on. Friends, in those times, it's right to pray, but it's also important to trust that God will work through them, and his perfect will is far better than our own. We must trust Jesus, as Mary did at this wedding. Jesus himself actually modelled this faithful obedience when he went to the cross. Before the cross, he prayed to his heavenly Father, look, if there's any way that I can be delivered from what I'm about to endure, please, please let it be so. How does he finish that prayer? Not my will, but yours be done. That faithful obedience in times of trial is what is to mark us as Christians. It is when we trust God, when things don't appear to be working out the way that we hoped, that we are shown to truly be God's people submitting to his wisdom rather than relying on our own even when it's painful so the scene is set the disaster is looming it's on the horizon and now that Jesus has made his intentions clear John tells us he performs his first sign one that will save the wedding but more importantly will reveal Jesus and his mission From me to verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. Uh, Jesus was at a Jewish wedding, of course, and it was common for a Jewish household to have these large stone water jars out the back they held water that was used for ceremonial washing. Because before eating, the Jews would wash themselves, their hands, they would wash all of their crockery, all of their tableware, anything they were going to use uh, to prepare uh, for the feast. So of course at this point, those jars are empty. The feast has already begun. We're more than halfway through. And Jesus tells the servants, go and fill those jars up with water. And we're talking about a lot of water here. I, I did, I'm not so good at maths, but I did some calculations. I worked pretty hard on it. And we're told that each jar holds 20 to 30 gallons of water. Uh, roughly speaking, I think that's 100 to 150 gallons total capacity for all six jars. That means when filled to the brim... Uh, in today's terms, there will be enough water to fill our bathtubs five to six times over. Okay. So if you've got a bathtub at home, that will give you an idea of how much water we're talking about. Okay. Each jar, two bathtubs up to the brim. All right. Lots of water. And Jesus tells the servants, draw some of it out and take it to the master of the feast. And that's exactly what they do. I'm told in verse 8, Jesus tells them, now draw some out, take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. The master of the feast is uh, the one who holds, I guess, what today we would call the MC, uh, the master of ceremony at a wedding dinner. He's in charge of logistics, uh, making sure that everybody got their food, their drink, and generally everybody was having a good time. He was there to host them. And yet, this MC wasn't aware that the wine had even run out. He didn't even know where this mysterious new wine had come from. We read in verse 9, When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. What's most amazing and surprising for the MC is just how good this new mysterious wine is tasting to him. This was the best vintage ever. It's so good that he calls the bridegroom over. You know, the one who was responsible for providing the wine in the first place. The one who had totally failed at his job because the wine had run out. The MC doesn't know that. And he's just amazed, because he thinks the bridegroom has been ridiculously generous, saving the very best vintage of wine to this point in the feast, when traditionally they'd be bringing out much poorer wine, because by that point people were losing their sense of taste. The wine that Jesus miraculously provides at this wedding is the very best, and he provides it in abundance. Those huge Jewish water jars are now full of this good, rich wine. So the bridegroom has been saved, a horrific embarrassment. The celebrations can continue. And yet, of course, we know the significance of what Jesus has done in this miracle goes much, much deeper than that. Come with me to verse 11 as we look at the significance Of what Jesus has done here. Verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. As I said earlier, that the miracle that Jesus performs here. Turning water to the best of wine. Reveals something of his glory. Reveals something of who he is. Now, how did it help the disciples to see who Jesus was more clearly? We're going to look at this from a few different angles. Firstly, just look at what Jesus does here. Without even lifting a finger, he turns plain water into wine. The best wine. Now, there's only one other person Who has that kind of power over creation? It's the one who brought creation into being out of nothing. Jesus, by turning water into wine here, is confirming what John has already told us about him at the beginning of his Gospel. That Jesus, as the living Word of God, is God. He is Emmanuel. He is God in the flesh. God with us. Not only does this miracle reveal that Jesus is God, secondly, in the light of the Old Testament, he gives us a glimpse of why he came. This miracle points us to the reason Jesus came. And we see that in the abundant rich wine that he provides. Now, the abundant rich wine Jesus provides is a symbol of of God keeping his promises to his people. Promises of comfort and restoration. As we read through the Old Testament, we see that the relationship between God and his people is far from perfect. Israel had stubborn, sinful hearts that constantly turned away from him. They constantly went astray. They would not honour God as their God. God disciplined them for their unfaithfulness. They were ridiculed by foreign nations as a punishment from him. And ultimately, they were deported from the good land that he had given to them, his people, as part of his provision. It was an experience that made it clear to them that they were not right with him. They were not right with God. But in the midst of that punishment, God's prophets also gave... A message of great hope. That one day God would work to save them, despite their unfaithfulness and sin. He would usher in a new age, when the punishment that he had laid on his people would be taken away forever. And one of the images that the prophets used to describe that great age of restoration for his people is given in the picture of wine. Wine. Rich, abundant wine. We saw that in our Old Testament reading in Isaiah 25. It's on the screens. Let me just read it. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow. Of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations, The abundance of good wine that Jesus provides at this wedding points to God fulfilling his promises of salvation to his people. This salvation described as a great feast in Isaiah of rich food, well-aged wine, where God's people would be with their God. He would wipe every tear from their eye. Death would be swallowed up forever. No more sadness, pain. So for the disciples witnessing Jesus in the light of what's been said already in the Old Testament, this miracle would have got them really excited. Jesus was the one who was bringing in the new age that God had promised. The new age he had promised for his people where his punishment on their sin would be removed forever. An age that is marked by gladness and joy described as a feast of well aged wine rich food friends is that how we view the Christian faith as a faith full of joy in the light of the new age that Jesus is bringing in I don't mean a shallow happiness where we just go around all the time with big smile on our faces but a deep joy in Christ that sustains us and enables us to rejoice whether we are going through good times or hard times. John shows us here that Jesus is the one who brings in the wine of celebration and feasting that God promised. Not in its fullness at this point, but Jesus is the one who brings in the good wine that points forward to that new creation that we can look forward to. He has made it possible for us to be a part of that new creation through his death on the cross, taking the punishment for our sins that we might be forgiven. So it doesn't mean that our Christian life will always be happy or easy. We will still wait for the time when we will experience God's blessings in every way as his people when Jesus returns. But it does show us that at the heart of the Christian faith, even now, there is to be deep joy. This celebration pictured by abundant wine. Are we rejoicing as Christians in the light of the future that we've received in Jesus? Or we will be if we truly understand and live in the light of it. This great future pictured by abundant wine celebrating joy that God promised. Wine pointing forward to the new creation where we will be with our God. Well, back to the significance of what Jesus is doing here. And thirdly there were those huge religious water jars, weren't there? Uh, the ones in which Jesus turned the water into wine. John made the point of telling us what they're normally used for. You see it back in verse 6. Those six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. Purification. See, they were a constant reminder for God's people, these Jewish water jars, that they were impure. They were unclean because of their sin. They were unclean before God spiritually. So they would follow these customs to seek to purify themselves only to get dirty again. Only to have to wash themselves again. And Jesus uses these jars to show that his mission and his work would mean the removal of that old order of the customs of the law. The water in those religious jars is replaced with this great new wine that Jesus now provides at the wedding. Because God had promised through those same prophets and those promises of restoration for his people, that it would involve him washing them from within, cleansing their hearts, so that they would be pure, so that they would be able to have a relationship with them which is unhindered by their sin. Friends, Jesus didn't come to establish a new set of regulations, a new set of rules by which we are to seek to make ourselves right with God. That's not why Jesus came he came to wash us clean taking the penalty for our sins at the cross that through faith in him we might be made clean by his blood Jesus came to give us relationship not rules so the Christian faith has nothing to do with religious works with this idea that we somehow make ourselves right before God. And those Jewish ceremonial jars are now obsolete. They can obsolete, they can be smashed, thrown away. And if we try and make our Christian faith a matter of religious rule keeping, then we are effectively turning the great wine that Jesus provides here back into that tasteless water. That useless, tasteless, good. The new age that Jesus brings in means relationship with God, not rule keeping, and it's one of joy, not onus. Finally, the fourth significance we see is that Jesus is the true bridegroom. He is the true bridegroom. Remember the bridegroom at the wedding in Cana. How he failed completely in his one responsibility to make sure there was enough provision both the food and the wine for the people, he failed in the most important task he had on that day. But Jesus, by turning all of that water into the best of wine, is shown to be the true bridegroom. Because just as the wine is a picture of God's abundant provision in restoring his people, so the wedding here in Cana pictures that ultimate wedding between God and his people. It's another picture that God gives us and gives his people to comfort us. That we would have hope. And that Israel would have had hope in the midst of his judgment upon them. Have a look in Hosea chapter 2, verse 11 to 14. Read it on the screen. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my baal. For I will remove the names of the baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. Verse 19, And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. As we see in Israel, is described as an unfaithful bride, constantly going after other gods, constantly committing adultery against their God, worshipping the Baas instead of Him. But God promises that one day He would woo them back to Himself. We get the same picture in Isaiah a bit later. Describing the restoration of God's people. We read, in Isaiah sixty two, You shall no more be termed forsaken, your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in him, your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your man your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. God speaks of how one day he will delight over his people as a bridegroom delights over his bride. And Jesus gives us a glimpse in this wedding and this miracle of how he fulfills that role as the true bridegroom. As God in person at this wedding Jesus reveals something of what he would go to accomplish. In love, laying his life down for us as his people that we might be forgiven our unfaithfulness, washed clean through his death, prepared as a beautiful bride for him, our true bridegroom. So how does Jesus reveal his glory through this incredible miracle? Well, he shows that he is God, come to rescue his people, come to keep every one of those promises of restoration. He is the glorious bridegroom who provides the rich blessings of salvation that God had promised all those years ago. The disciples see something of that and they believe in him. Verse 11 again. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. How did they respond? They put their faith in Jesus. They trusted that he was the one through whom they would receive the promises of new life with God. Seen in the abundant wine that Jesus provides pointing forward to that great feast where he, they would be with him for eternity. That brings us to our final point. Our response to the bridegroom. Our response to the bridegroom. John gives us this account that we might put our faith in Jesus it's Jesus who enables us to enjoy everything God promised of the new age of his restoration when he would count our sins against us no more and take us into his new creation that's something we look forward to as Christians as those who have put our trust in Christ it is through Jesus that we can be part of that it's not, John doesn't just give us these verses to learn about a wedding Heaven and Cana? No, he gives them to us to invite us ourselves to taste the new wine of God's kingdom given by Jesus. How do we receive that invitation? Well, by trusting him, as his disciples did here, and in the light of his death and resurrection, where he paid the full price for our sins on the cross, trusting that he has kept every one of God's promises that it is through faith in him and the blood he shed for us that we are washed clean. We can be prepared for God as a beautiful bride, not because we were worthy, loved it, but because Jesus was and he died on the cross in our place, the death that we deserved. It's only through faith in him that we can be prepared for God. Those who reject Jesus now will not meet God as a loving husband on that final day. They will meet him as their holy judge, who will condemn them for their sin for eternity. But what about those of us who have believed in Jesus, who have received him for who He is, the true bridegroom, that brings us this restoration that God has promised, will live in the light of that greater restoration to come, of the wedding to which this wedding points? The wedding supper of the Lamb. Make sure that that day is moulding your attitudes to life right now. Both in times when we have much, and in times when we are in great need. In times when we have much, we need to guard our hearts about against becoming too attached to the riches that this world has to offer. It's so easy to do, isn't it? In a country where we are so richly blessed with so many good things we're not careful we take our eyes off where we are heading as Christians and we focus entirely on the here and now and we seek to put our security in the things that we have rather than what we have in Christ we say I've got to have that car I've got to, I've got to have that house I've got to have that job I've got to have that holiday I've got to have that latest Osin massage chair just ask yourself could you live without that? Just ask for something. If, if all those things were taken away, if all your financial security disappeared, and the comfort that such financial security brings, could you still rejoice because Jesus is your Lord and because of what you have received in Him? Nothing wrong with enjoying the great blessings that God provides for us in this life but don't become dependent on them. Don't treat them as idols that will choke your joy in Christ and what we have received in Him. And then secondly, in times of need, on the flip side, when we are experiencing times of great pain and loss, those times we should take great comfort in the future that we've received from God through His Son the great feast of God's blessing to which this wedding in Cana points. To which that abundant wine, that rich feast points. The feast that we read of in Isaiah 25 where broken relationships, tears, sorrow, loss, that will all be a thing of the past. God will wipe away every tear from our eye and the sufferings that we've endured in this life will not compare to the glory that we will experience there. For now, we look forward and we persevere with faith in Jesus until that great day dawns, that ultimate marriage between God and his people, the one that Jesus came to establish through his death on the cross for us. Well, later in his life, John was given a glimpse of that great future, of that great future glorious wedding between us and the Lord. And God graciously caused him to write down what he saw on that great day, on that great celebration as well. And I'm going to close with the words that John wrote concerning that day in Revelation 19, verse 7. Why don't we flick forward to that passage? Revelation chapter 19, let me read from verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, Blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Let's pray together.